Uh, welcome back to Calvary Life. This is a podcast for the members of Calvary Baptist Church and also for anybody else out there that's interested in local church life. And I am Charles Uptain. I'm Paul Thompson. And today we have a guest, and I'm going to let uh, Paul introduce our guest for us for today's podcast. Today we have a friend of our congregation. He's a friend of David Glover, but he's also a friend of the church. This is uh, Dr. Mike Lycoma, and he has a PhD in New Testament, so we're going to delve deeply into some questions and, and pick your brain today. Uh, he's a professor of New Testament studies at Houston Christian University and married with two adult children, author of seven books. I'm holding one now, which I might reference if we have time. Why are there differences in the Gospels? Um, but also some, some really heady work. If you want to dig in deep, Resurrection of Jesus, a new historiographical approach, Evidence for God, uh, Paul meets Muhammad, uh, The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus, uh, Behold, I Stand at the Door and Knock. How do you respond to Mormons or Jehovah Witnesses when they come to your door? We don't have that as frequently as we used to, but we still do. So, um, Dr. Lacona, we welcome you. Thank you for giving us some time for us today. Well, thank you, Paul and Charles. Pleasure to be with you all. I, I wanted to start this discussion with you um, to reference an email. This is one that I received. We ask for questions in our podcast. So we ask for folks, if there's something you'd love for us to talk about, then shoot it to us and we will talk about it. And this was a question that came from one of our small group leaders and, and one of our larger, smallish groups, Sunday morning groups. And the question he posed to his small group was this, is the Bible still relevant to Christians in today's ever-changing world? And he told me, he said, when I asked this question to them, I just assumed that this was going to be kind of a rhetorical question. And everyone was going to give me emphatically yes. Um, but he said, Immediately to a surprise, one of his class members retorted that Christians should not believe all that's written in our Bibles, our English translation Bibles, because they're not accurate due to difficulties translating Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, etc. to English. So the question was posed, can we trust the various translations as being the Word of God, or do we need to learn the biblical languages in order to correctly understand the message of Scripture? Well, I think that's a fair question. Um, but yeah, I think most of our English translations today are are quite reliable. Now, uh, you know, I, I don't read Hebrew, but I do read Greek. I've I started reading, I started learning Greek in December 1983. And so when I read the New Testament, I'm usually reading it in Greek, its original language. Um, and I can say that most English translations are essentially faithful representations of, of what the Greek says. Some are, uh, I, I like some more than I like others. Um, perhaps my favorite English translation, and I'm not saying this should be someone else's favorite, but my favorite is the New American Standard Bible. I like it because it's probably the most word-for-word -word, um, representation of you know, the closest to to a, a literal tr translation of, of what the Greek would say. But sometimes it's awkward. Um, and maybe something like the ESV, the English Standard Version, uh, would be better for most readers. Or the New International Version, the NIV, that, that's a really good one. Sometimes that communicates the thoughts better than what's behind the literal translation. So I think most of them are really good. None of them are perfect, not even the New American Standard. Uh, none of them are perfect. Most of them are are really good, um, except the New World Translation used by the Jehovah's Witnesses. It's really inadequate, and 
Um, anyone who's even had a year's worth studying Greek knows that whoever these translators were, they didn't know what they were doing. Are there are there some translations that you would caution people? I mean, not the same category, obviously, as New World Translation, but maybe this isn't your best translation, or if you do use this translation for personal study, be aware of these limitations. You know, I, I a lot of biblical scholars use the new revised standard version, and they just came out recently with an updated edition. I don't really like it. I mean, it's good in most cases, but there are a few instances in it where I don't think it's a, a good translation. Um, you know, like I said, there are no perfect ones, but where the new revised standard version is not perfect, I think it, it is a more occurs in rather important uh, instances. Uh, like, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, um, verse 44, I believe it is, where uh, Paul says, um, it, referring to the corpse, is sown um, a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. Well, the New Revised Standard Version um, translates that it is sown a physical body, it is raised a spiritual body. In other words, they're contrasting today's body that we have being a physical body, material body, with a spiritual immaterial body. And that is not all what Paul had in mind right there. The term used for uh, that the New Revised Version translates physical and that most English translations referred to as natural is the term psuchikas, which comes from suche, uh, or psyche, that we would use for psychology, the study of the soul, the study of, of life. Um, it, it never means material or physical, never. Uh, did a study of every time that that term appears in the extant ancient Greek literature from the 8th century BC through the 3rd century. So 1100 years. If I recall correctly, it appears 846 times. And on not a single one of those occasions, does it mean physical or material? So um, that translation is no longer sustainable. Um, but other translations render it like that as well. I think the New Jerusalem Bible, the Amplified Bible, um, but most English translations by far uh, render it as natural. Now, why is that important? Uh, because Paul will say that the way in that same chapter, ver verses 20 and 23 of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, it, that the way Christ is raised is the way we will be raised. And although Paul doesn't really come out and say directly how Christ was raised, he does say how we are going to be raised. And so if we're going to be raised just spiritually, immaterially, then that means Paul thought that Jesus was just raised spiritually, immaterially, um, and therefore there would not have been an empty tomb. You'd have to say that that was legendary. Um, they couldn't touch Jesus, thing, you know, his resurrection body. He didn't fix breakfast for them. Um, and so they must have just had visions or hallucinations of the risen Jesus. Um, that's all behind these kinds of translations. Um, so there is a so, theological bent of the translators then in that case. I mean, they, that's, they that's correct. Translating it that way, this didn't just slip through. How did we miss this? This is intentional, right? Exactly. This was a question that came up in a 
in a podcast we did recently with one of our missionaries who's serving in the Middle East. And whenever, whenever there's a gospel conversation and the Bible comes out or the Bible comes part of the discussion, the response almost invariably, and it's usually the first response, is you can't trust that. This is just seems to be the typical Muslim first reaction. You can't trust that. Too many translations, too many variations. The Bible's not reputable. How would we answer that? And I, I know that's similar to the first sort of question, but how would we answer that in those sort of conversations that we might have with a Muslim friend or neighbor or coworker? When right out of the chute, um, it seems like we're kind of cut off and now we're struggling. All right, where do I go from here? Yeah, I think it it just depends on why they're saying we can't trust it. Um, typically, Muslims tend to use some of the arguments that Bart Ehrman, um, who refers, he's a New Testament scholar, probably the most influential skeptical New Testament scholar in the world. Uh, he refers to himself as an agnostic atheist. I'm not sure what that means, um, but um, but he's certainly a non-believer. Um, and he will use typical objections. Mm-hmm. Well, isn't his wife in ministry or was a minister like Methodist or something like that? Did I recall correctly back in my seminary days? I, I think she's probably Methodist. And yeah, she, uh, I don't know her. I've met her once. I don't know anything about her spiritual walk. Um, I've heard that she claims to be a Christian. May, maybe she is. Um, I just don't know her. I, I don't know anything about her uh, except that she teaches at Duke. And I think she's a Shakespearean uh, scholar. Okay. Um, but I don't, I don't know anything about her. Um, but yeah, so he'll give some typical objections like we have no idea who wrote the Gospels because in our earliest manuscripts that include the, the first page, um, the titles aren't there that we find in our current Bibles, the Gospel according to Matthew, the Gospel according to Mark, et cetera, that these were added at a later date and therefore the Gospels are anonymous uh, the originals were anonymous, and um, so they're not claiming to be written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We don't know who wrote them. Um, these were just later Christians that are just taking traditions about Jesus that had circulated in an uncontrolled manner for 40 or more years before they got put down in writing. And I, I think that those objections, those that I've just mentioned, are just easily answered. So, for example, um, we have about 90, uh, right around 90 extant biographies that were written within about 150 years on each side of Jesus. So within about a three-century period, you've got n about 90 biographies written about different people um, in that era. And the name of the author only appears in one, <laughs> just one. It's uh, Lucian's Passing of Peregrinus, and uh, yeah, so and he's just mentioning his name because he's writing for his his patron. Um, so all the rest of them are anonymous, formally anonymous in the same sense the Gospels are. And yet no one's going to say we have no idea who wrote them. Now, how do we know who wrote those biographies? Well, we don't know how the ancients knew. Was was there a bookmark of a sort within the scroll or codex that um, had the author's name? Or was there a cover of some sort that, you know, the author's name was was written on it? We, we don't know. But somehow the ancients knew. Um, and it's the same thing with the Gospels. Somehow they knew. So, for example, our first testimony is Papias, who's probably writing 
in the first decade of the second century. Now, some scholars, a lot of scholars will place him in the fourth decade of the second century. Either way, it's still quite early. And Papias says pretty much that he got this information on the author of the Gospels, authors of the Gospels, from one of Jesus's disciples. Well, actually, the language is a little bit vague it could, or ambiguous. It could be referring to one of Jesus' disciples, like the Apostle John, or it may be referring to a minor disciple of Jesus, yet an eyewitness, or it could be referring to someone who knew the Apostle John. Either way, it's really, uh, you know, that's very close to eyewitness, and they're saying that you know, it's a credible source. If you're even if you're getting it from an associate of one of Jesus' disciples who told tells Papias that Mark wrote Mark, that Matthew wrote Matthew, that's pretty good. That's better than what we have for a lot of other. I mean, for example, the best the best biographer in antiquity considered by most scholars is Plutarch, who wrote in the early part of the second century, the first couple of decades of the second century, um, first two decades of the second century, and. Um, he wrote 48 biographies that have survived. Actually, he wrote a little more than 60, but only 48 have survived. How do we know that Plutarch wrote them? Because they are all anonymous in the same sense the Gospels are. Well, we know it because there's a thing called the Lamprius Catalog that lists uh, that the authorship of them. However, that's an imperfect source. It was written at least 200 years after Plutarch wrote. It's falsely attributed to Plutarch's son. And it contains literature that most classicists today would say Plutarch did not write. But still, um, that's our best evidence that Plutarch wrote the 48 biographies um, that have uh, been attributed to him. So the evidence that we have the, uh, for the authorship of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's by no means unimpeachable. But it's a heck of a lot better than what we have for a lot of the other literature in antiquity that goes unquestioned in terms of its authorship. Okay, so help me out with this. This is kind of a, I know this is a, a lengthy question, a lengthy discussion, but just maybe a simplified version of how do we how do we reconcile that, what you just said, the understanding of the different authors, the human authors, the distinctions and, and style and, and, and grammar and contents with what we understand when we say inerrancy? When we say to someone, we believe the Bible is inerrant, what are we what are we saying? That is a great, great question. And in fact, I'm scheduled to read a paper on this very topic at the annual meeting of the Evangelical Theological Society next week in San Antonio. Um, so yeah, I I think that we need to examine it a, a little bit more. And in fact, William Lane Craig, the great uh, Christian philosopher, theologian, and apologist. In fact, I happen to think he's the, the finest Christian apologist in the history of the church. And he's writing his magnum opus right now. And his first volume is the doctrine of scripture. And he says, it the doctrine of scripture is one of the most underdeveloped doctrines in the in uh, philosophical theology today you know so what do we mean by inspiration what do we mean by inerrancy and sometimes at least for inspiration it, it it seems to me that we often do a top-down approach we make certain assumptions on what we think divine inspiration is based on perhaps modern concepts and then we view the text in that way whereas what we probably should do like uh the great biblical scholar 
uh, F.F. Bruce said is to do a bottom-up approach where he says, I really don't understand what inspiration means until I actually look at the text and spend a lot of time with it. Um, and he goes on and it's basically, it's like, okay, whatever our view of inspiration is, it has to take into account what scripture says about itself and what we observe in scripture. Uh, because different models of inspiration can produce different understandings of what inerrancy is. So take, for example, um, uh, what, what do we mean by inerrancy? Well, the typical understanding is the Bible has no errors in it whatsoever. Well, then you have conservative scholars, very ultra-conservative scholars like the late Norman Geisler and others who would say, um, well, there are numerous errors in our present Bible, but these are due to copyist errors. Uh, inerrancy only applies to the autographs. So what you, what they end up doing is uh, say they're affirming the inerrancy of text that we no longer have while denying the inerrancy of the texts that we have. Well, how does that help us um, so when a person in your church says, is the Bible, wait a minute, pastor, all I want to know is, is the, we don't have the autographs, is the Bible that I hold in my hands, the inerrant word of God? And according to Norman Geisler and others, you'd have to say, no, it's not. Well, wait a minute, but we know where most of the errors are. Well, how do we know that? Well, we know it because, you know, when you look at things like Samuel Kings and Chronicles, um, you can tell where the copyist errors are because they're told, to like, for example, in, in 1 Samuel, it says David killed Goliath, but in 2 Samuel, maybe, yeah, in 2 Samuel, it says Elhanan killed Goliath. Well, there was probably a copyist error there, and it meant Elhanan, the brother of Goliath. Well, perhaps. Well, why can we know this? Well, because there are parallel texts. Well, are we to think that the only time a, scribal, a scribe may have made an error is when there was a parallel text? When what about when there are no parallel text? Uh, scribes didn't just say, oh, I'm only going to make a copyist error here when there's a parallel text. So we cannot possibly know that there, uh, we've captured all the copyist errors. So what I'd say is I think we, it's, we're better off to define inerrancy to say the Bible is without error in its message, uh, in all that it teaches. And you say, well, uh, yeah, but wait a minute. Um, I don't feel comfortable with that. Okay, well, then we have to examine why we don't feel comfortable with that. Have we had so rigid a view of inerrancy in the past that, you know, it just takes a little bit of time to get used to? And you say, well, that's just a slippery slope. Well, wait a minute. Um, why do you believe that we can trust the Bible that we have today while acknowledging that it contains errors? The answer is um, because God in his sovereignty, because he loved us so much that the incarnation occurred. We trust that in his sovereignty, he preserved a text that is sufficiently accurate and, and preserves everything he wants for us to know. So, okay, well, I agree. You know, that's how we can be confident, even with inerrant in the message today. That applies not only to the autographs, but it applies to our present Bible, that God in his sovereignty, given his love for us, he guaranteed 
that the text was preserved with sufficient accuracy and everything we wanted to know. Um, to me, that, that answer is a lot more satisfying because we can claim the inerrancy of the text that we presently have. And whether whatever definition of inerrancy you go with, you still have to have faith that God loved us enough to preserve it with sufficient accuracy. Do you have many, many challenges? Feel free to push back on that, by the way. No, I'm just, I'm trying to think through. I was actually thinking the questions that somebody driving in their car might be having flying around. I think most of our references, and I think probably the times I've mentioned inerrancy, I've probably fallen back on more of a, I guess, sort of like a Geisler approach to that. And I think part of that is just is conceding that there are discrepancies or disparities, whatever the right word would be, that some some are more apparent than others. And so yeah. somehow we got we've got to answer these. It's, you know, timeline on Passion Week. We we've got to answer okay, why does this seem to be written out a little bit differently here? Or, you know, some of those kinds of there seem to be some obvious some more than others. And so I think I, I've often fallen back, and there probably is shaky ground to say those original manuscripts, because that seems kind of safe and ambiguous. And not only do I not have to defend it, you can't really attack it. It's just it's kind of like what Richard Dawkins and Francis Crick do with life. So uh, Francis Crick was an agnostic who, one of the two guys who discovered DNA, and Richard Dawkins, a, a militant atheist uh, who was a professor, a science professor at Oxford, now retired. And um, they recognized the amazing complexity of life, so complex that even if it's given that the earth is four billion, four and a half billion years old, they both said that's not enough time uh, for random mutations to produce even a single uh, cell of DNA. And so the way that they describe or, or account for this rather than creation is they come up with something called directed panspermium, where they say, well, life came from another planet, which is no longer there. <laughs> well, that's kind of like saying, well, inerrancy only applies to the autographs. It's possible, of course, but there's no way of checking it. And in terms of the, um, uh, in, in terms of, uh, of the discrepancies or uh, differences between like the timeline of Passion Week and many of the differences we find in the Gospels, of course, I deal with this in my book, Why Are There Differences in the Gospels? And I have a new book coming out with Zondervan next year, uh, supposed to come out uh, May 28th next year. Uh, this is the other book that you're referring, that, that I just referred to, that you have, uh, I see you have it in your hands right now, published by Oxford University Press. That's more of an academic monograph, um, whereas the one with Zondervan coming out next year is a far more friendly for most readers and is even friendly for small group usage. Um, so uh, what I explain in there uh, is that the ancients, and, and I show through the compositional textbooks and show how Plutarch used it, um, there were compositional devices that um, everybody in their secondary and tertiary education who went that far in their education were trained in their writing. In fact, Theon in the first century in his uh, preliminary exercises called Pro Gymnosmata, and it was how, how to become better writer, he explains a lot of these. And then others can be inferred through how Plutarch told the same story on different occasions. And a lot of these are things that we do in our everyday, ordinary conversation. So for example, um, I, I might uh, have a conversation 
it, it uh, let's say there were three of us and we're going down the street and we bump into some Muslims and we end up having a conversation and the Muslims were saying, well, Jesus did not die on the cross. The Quran says that God made it appear that way. And so we have an hour conversation on why we should think that Jesus died by crucifixion. And I come home and I tell my wife that I was just involved in a three-hour conversation with some Muslims on why Jesus died. Well, I didn't mention the two friends with me. Um, or, you know, we do this kind of stuff all the time. Uh, we can call that, uh, if you do it in literature, literary spotlighting. And that can e that was so common. You find it so common in how ancient historians and biographers wrote. Um, extremely common. And that can easily account for why Matthew and Luke, Matthew and Mark only report mention one angel at the tomb, whereas Luke and John mentioned two. Matthew and uh, Matthew and Mark don't say only one angel; they only mention one, and it might be because it's the one who's announcing Jesus rose from the dead. Um, so, and in fact, you've got three instances of literary spotlighting in the resurrection narratives. You've got a whole lot of other compositional devices like, you know, compression. Conflation, uh, displacement, where you displace uh, an event chronologically from its true chronological context and you transplant it in a different one for whatever purpose. Um, there is transferal, where you transfer what one person said to the lips of another, or you transfer and change the recipient of that message. So, for example, um, Jesus's baptism is reported in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Mark and Luke, when Jesus comes out of the water, reports that God's voice came out of heaven and said, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Jesus is, I, I'm, God is addressing Jesus directly. But Matthew has God's voice say, this is my beloved son. With him, I am well pleased. God is directly addressing the crowd. Now, you can try to harmonize that, like the gospel of the Ebionites did, and say, well, God said it to Jesus, and then he said it to the crowd. Or, I think Augustine had it more uh, a, a better explanation, saying Matthew changed it um, to have God speak to the people around, because he wanted to make this more personable to the readers of the gospel, that God is speaking to them and affirming that Jesus is his beloved son. Um, so all these kinds of things, it happens on a regular basis throughout the gospels. And so my point is this, when we see these things, it would be naive to refer to them as contradictions. I think there, it's better, uh, a, a more accurate answer would be to say, they are due to compositional devices that were part and parcel of writing ancient history. That does beg the question a little bit, too, of what we mean when we say inspiration, right? Like, what means, uh, what, what does that actually entail? If, if God inspired the words of Matthew and inspired the words of Luke, why are those words somewhat different on a section like that? So what's, what's our best definition, our understanding of inspiration? Great, great question. And, and um, you know, the Bible doesn't really tell us how inspiration occurred or exactly what it is. It just tells us, like, 
All right. The mother of all verses in the Bible and inspiration is what? Second Timothy 3.16. All scripture is theonoustos in the Greek. God breathed literally is what it says. All scripture is God breathed. But what does that term theonoustos mean in the ancient Greek literature? Well, you do a, a search for it, and there are some some interest a, a good program called TLG that allows you to do that, and you find that uh, Theonoustos appears around twenty five hundred times in the ancient Greek literature, uh, from the eighth century BC all the way up in you know maybe to one thousand AD. Um, the the term really starts to 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 uh, catch on with Origen. I think he says it uses it 49 or 51, 53 times uh, in the early third century. But before the early third century, it only appears on eight clear occasions and possibly as many as 13. And um, I mean, it's used not only of scripture, but it's used um, in the lives of Carpus, Papillus, and Agathonis, a Christian document, um, Carpus says, uh, he's telling the Roman prefect who is about to execute him that uh, he he, he says, if you want to know the truth, um, you know, you, you check out the um, inspired teachings of the church, the theonustas, the inspired teachings of the church. Um, you've got the Sibylline oracles, some of which may go back to as early as the second century BC, um, referred to streams that served uh, ancient pagan female prophets called Sibyls, um, that these streams served them. They were theonustic streams, God-breathed God streams. Um, so there's all the ointments. The Testament of Abraham says that, uh, which is, uh, I think, from the second century uh, Jewish literature, talks about how angels, uh, when Abraham died, they put theonustic, God-breathed ointments on his corpse. So it's used in a bunch of different senses. And, and I think that when we're looking at the term theonustas or God-breathed, um, we've got to be careful not to read more into it than is actually there. I think we can say it means that it derives from God, um, it's approved by God, that... Um, I think the Lexham research commentary is correct to say that its ultimate origin is God, but beyond that basic understanding, it's hard to go further than that. And then the second uh, scripture that's used for it is Second uh, Peter 1, verses 20 and 21, where it says, no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, uh, but men moved or carried along, born along by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. That does sound like dictation right um but when we like i said you got to look at what scripture says about itself and then you've got to look at scripture itself the phenomena or nature of scripture observe scripture itself and match the two together and um when when you do that there's some interesting stuff in there so most scholars agree, most New Testament scholars, even evangelicals, will agree that Mark has some awkward grammar uh, and that Matthew and Luke use Mark as their primary source, supplement Mark, which wouldn't have been at all abnormal, even if Matthew was an eyewitness. Um, 
so it, it seems that in some cases that Matthew and Luke found Mark's uh, grammar awkward and improved it. So if we're going to take dicta a dictation view, not only are we saying, well, God had different personalities, but we'd have to envision that the Holy Spirit later read Mark and said, you know what? I can do better than that with my grammar. Let's say it this way in Matthew and in Luke. Um, or how about Paul's memory lapse in 1 Corinthians 1.16 when he says, uh, you know, I don't remember if if uh, I baptized some anyone outside the household of, of Stephanus. If we're going to take divine inspiration as God directing every single word and controlling like a, a, an individual, like a robot in a dictation view, then we also have to imagine the Holy Spirit at some point saying, hey, wait a minute, Paul, I think you're getting ahead of yourself. Why don't you take a writing break there and let me check heaven's records to see who else you baptized, only to find out that that item was missing in heaven's records. Um, no, there is a human element in scripture. And so how divine inspiration works, unfortunately, scripture does not tell us. But I think it did have a human element in it that is greater than a lot of us um, have imagined in the past. So I think... Um, William Lane Craig might be correct um, when he says in an article in Philosophia Christi in 1999 that God uh, orchestrated some circumstance. And by the way, B.B. Uh, Warfield said something similar more than 100 years ago, um, that God orchestrated certain circumstances so that at a certain period of time, Paul uh, would write something like what he did. Um, did God direct every word? Well, uh, maybe not. Did God care if Paul in his letter greeted Flagon? Maybe not. Um, if, if God was dictating, may he have said some things differently than Paul did uh, in terms of the way that he said it? Perhaps. We cannot know. Um, so I, I think by inspiration, we could say that God, at minimal, um, and I'm trying here to be careful so that I don't go further, further than what the evidence can bear. You can hold a different position, but as a historian, I just like to go with, you know, how far can we actually go with the evidence? And, and I'm comfortable in thinking that by inspiration, the, um, we have in mind that, that God was ultimately involved in the production of Scripture— Yes, there's, to an extent, dual authorship, but God oversaw the process and that the end product was approved by him. So we and God intended us to have, and we have all that God intended us to have in terms of revelation. Written yes. Apart, apart from Christ. Okay, uh, Mike, can we do like a speed round real quick? Because I know we're going to run out of time. Sure. Um, I've got a few things I want to ask you. Some of these are for selfish motives, Okay. This one I'm just curious on, just get your opinion. So we just got finished doing a series through the pastoral epistles. And so this past week, I preached on 2 Timothy uh, in chapter 4. And I'm just curious um, what, Paul was, what Paul was asking for here. So Paul asks for, he says, when you come, this is 2 Timothy 4.13, bring the cloak that I left, that's pretty obvious, with Carpus at Troas, also the books and above all the parchments. What do you suppose Paul had there in those parchments? Well, of course, that's a good question. Of course, all we can do is speculate there. Um, 
I, I think some are correct when maybe within those parchments, not only were they the scriptures themselves, a uh, copy of the scriptures, but also um, copies of the letters he'd already sent. It, it was commonplace back then that when you wrote a letter or wrote anything that you had your scribe, your, your secretary, make a copy of it so that you had it on file yourself. Um, and that could very well be why there's a lot in Ephesians that's very similar to what we find in Colossians. Um, Paul was just uh, taking some of what was in one of the letters that had been written earlier and and put it uh, in the in another letter um, and and just you know paraphrased it a little bit. So um, yeah, I, I my if. My guess, and it's just a guess, it's speculation, is based on the the ancient practices of writers. It was probably copies of other letters that he had written and probably a copy of some of the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. What about his interactions with the risen Christ? Any possibility he's writing on his own parchments? He's got, this is, this is what he has received from the Lord, and he has that, his own notes, his own writings? Yeah, I... I that's got to be a possibility. And maybe that's where, uh, you know, Luke had been his traveling companion and he's hearing from Paul personally, and maybe he had access to notes that, that had that. Okay. Uh, this is a short answer. Who wrote Hebrews? <laughs> well, I like what Origen said in the early third century. Who wrote Hebrews? In truth, only God knows. <laughs> okay. Uh, this is probably an unfair question. Might put you on the spot. Um, with so much, obviously, that's happening in the world today, it's just begging the question, and probably the question I'm getting more and more and more has to do with last times, last days. And so really trying personally to dig in a little bit more, well, a lot more into eschatology. Could you summarize your eschatological position simply? Yeah. To be honest with you, Paul, um, I don't, I don't really have one right now. Um, I used to be pre-trib. Um, I gave up that view more than 10 years ago. I remember, um, <laughs> usually it's at night while I'm laying in bed. That's when I read my Greek New Testament. And uh, I remember coming across the passage in Matthew about, you know, two will be laying in bed, one taken and the other left. Two will be uh, grinding at the mill, one taken, the other left. Two will be in the field, one taken, the other left. And, you know, uh, the rapture, right? And and that's where I was believing at the time. And and um, you know, and Luke has a parallel text where it says, you know, in the days of Noah, Noah and his family got in the ark, and the rest were taken. Um, oh, wait a minute, the rest were taken. Well, they died. I don't want to be taken. Um, two grinding at the mill, one taken, and the other left, etc. And the disciples asked, "To where?" In other words, to where are they taken? And Jesus says, where the corpses are, there will the vultures be. Oh, uh, I don't want to be taken. So it's like, really? You want to use those verses for the rapture? How do you get that out of that? Because and then the other one about, you know, from 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 17, um, that seems to be referring to the general resurrection, not a rapture there. So um, um, I just, I, I gave up the rapture view, the pre-trib rapture view at that point. And to be honest with you, um, 
since then, my focus in my research has just been on historical matters. I really like, my passion is to study um, what can we actually prove about Jesus, and especially his resurrection. And I, I look at the historical reliability of the Gospels. And that book that you were holding about Gospel Differences, I spent eight years focused on that question, and I've spent another couple of years since focused exclusively on that question. So I, I take time and just focus and dive deeply into historical questions, and we only have so much time. And so I just haven't, the things like the eschatology, I know Jesus is coming back. I know that Paul and the early Christians believed at first that he was coming back in their lifetime. And, uh, you know, Paul did when he wrote 1 Corinthians. By the time he got to 2 Corinthians a few years later, he's thinking, yeah, it's probably not going to happen in my lifetime. And yet these guys were closer in time to Jesus, closer to the things he actually said and had more at their fingertips than we have today. And they believe Jesus was coming then. And, um, you know, I, I just got to think that I, I, even so, come Lord Jesus, come today. I'd really like him to, and maybe he will. I just have no idea. And I really just don't give it much attention. All right, this is my last question. This is entirely for personal reasons, because in the new year, I'm going to start preaching through the Gospel of Matthew. So what is the theme of the Gospel of Matthew? Can you give me a sentence? Um, wow, there's a lot. Uh, Jesus is Messiah. If I just had to say it in a real, you know, Jesus is Messiah. But there's so much in it that goes further than that to say he's the uniquely divine son of God. Um, there's so much in Matthew. And I've come to appreciate the artistry that Matthew has throughout the gospel. It, it's just, it's beautiful. I think there's more artistry in Matthew's gospel than in any of the others. So, Do you have um, recommendations yeah. for our folks to be reading that would prep them for that. Uh, any good resources or, or for our small group leaders who'll be leading discussions of text? Just I'll, I'll leave, I'll leave my questions at that one for today. Just throw out a recommendation or two for us. Ooh. Um, probably the simplest thing would be, um, um, I think IVP has put out, I'm trying to think of the name of it, but it, um, it's like a biblical background commentary by IVP. Craig Keener is the author of it. And so he authors comments that would kind of fill in some of this stuff as you go through it. So it's not like a extremely in-depth commentary, but it's going to give some really nice historical nuggets. I think it's called the Bible Background Commentary by IVP. My office is downstairs, but I'll, I'll definitely check it out. Mike, I really appreciate all the time you gave us today to do this and kind of spur to the moment and just taking all these questions on the fly. Oh, my my pleasure, Paul, Charles, and um, great to be with you guys. These You asked some good questions and to some of them, we can, you know, we can only speculate and try to make educational choices because the Bible just doesn't, you know, go into to depth with, with some of these. And so we just try to come up with some honest, authentic answers. Um, not everybody's going to agree with them. I may not agree with some of the things I said 10 years from now. I'm just trying to be, I love the, I love the scriptures and I, I want to bow to them love them and revere them as God has given it to us, the scriptures to us, 
rather than in, impose my view of how I think he should have. <laughs> no, I appreciate that. I think this will be super helpful for our folks. And, and to the original person who asked the question, the original question. So I appreciate that question. And I, and I think it really helped us with a good discussion today. So Dr. Lycona, thank you very much. Charles, I'll let you sign us off today. Yeah, so uh, we're glad to be once again doing this podcast. And uh, remember, if you have questions for us, our email is podcast at calvarydoth.com. Uh, we'd love to uh, answer another question or two in the next coming podcast. So send us an email. And like always, Calvary Baptist Church is for God, for Dothan, and for the world.